What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hey, listeners to the Heritage Voices Podcast. This is Chris Webster, founder of the Archaeology Podcast Network. And we're taking a small break during the month of October from releasing new episodes on our current feeds so we can bring you interesting episodes from other feeds on the Archaeology Podcast Network or other podcasts. This time, we're going to bring you one from one of our more popular podcasts, The Dirt Podcast. It's their episode 208 called Finding Our Religion with Dr. Dr. Candice Lukasik. This episode features an anthropologist and ethnographer, so I figured it would be appropriate for this audience. If you want to listen to more of the Dirt Podcast, look for it wherever you get your podcasts, or go over to arcpodnet.com and click on the Dirt logo. All right, on to the show. And welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And a quick shout out before we get into the episode. So thank you to Logan uh, for subscribing at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast and supporting the show. Yes. Thank you, Logan. So our subscribers get a monthly newsletter and depending on the tier of the subscription, up to three monthly ish bonus episodes of varying levels of absurdity and spiciness. For example, for a recent bonus app, I watched National Treasure 2 book of secrets it's not good and then tried to explain the plot to amber i'm not sure i succeeded but i enjoyed trying and peek behind the curtain i've also watched 10,000 bc and i have so many notes ready to record so many notes uh, and we literally couldn't make this show or provide resources like our past the mic grant without our patreon subscribers so thanks so much to all of you for your support and your patience we do our best to be timely with bonus episodes but seven episodes a month is a lot for a production team of two both of whom have day jobs all right how about an episode well how about a very special guest episode mm-hmm. uh Good. I'm glad you're on board because you're getting one. Uh, this week, we are joined by uh, Dr. Candice Lukasik, an assistant professor of religion and anthropology at Mississippi State University. So her research focuses on the intersections of transnational migration, religion, race, and empire. So there's lots to think about, lots to unpack, and we are very, very excited to learn. So thank you, Candice, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. First things first, how did you first get interested in anthropology and what has your trajectory been from from that first first point of interest until now? 
Yeah. So I'm going to go a little ways back because anthropology for me um, is something that um, I almost feel I stepped into by fate, meaning that, you know, in high school, I was, you know, really politically active and writing op-eds like against the Iraq war and arguing for pro-choice positions at the Supreme Court and all that was happening at that point in time in like the U.S., I guess, political field. So um, after I graduated high school, I did this program, this Arabic program um, in Cairo, uh, Cairo, Egypt, through the State Department. Um, I think today it's like known as um, NYSLI of some sort. It's like kind of high school version of the Critical Language Scholarship. Mm -hmm. You know, from that experience, it really kind of pushed me to think about politics beyond the U.S. Um, I think that for many of us growing up in the U.S., we tend to think of um, the whole entire world as us. Um, And so from that experience, um, I really began to kind of focus more broadly on comparative religion and kind of Muslim Christian relations after my experience in Egypt. And so I was introduced to Middle Eastern Christianity and particularly Coptic Orthodox Christianity um, during that trip and really became kind of captivated by like Coptic history and present day issues, like whether it be Cops minority status in Egypt, issues of sectarian violence, anti-Christian violence, or church-state relations. Um, and so while I was this kind of naive political science major during my undergrad, I became more and more interested in how um, kind of history, culture, and religion impacted upon these political contexts. And I saw them as both like national and transnational in nature. And so um, those interests really developed into like many trips to Egypt and like elsewhere in the region since 2007, like expanding my knowledge and network. And it wasn't until I did my MA thesis on um, uh, Coptic political groups after the 2011 Egyptian revolution. I did that in um, the South Asian African Studies Department at Columbia that I realized I, how much like I enjoyed thinking with people um, mm-hmm. and attending to kind of everyday intimate uh, understand their understandings of religion and politics. And it was really about that time that I was introduced around that time that I was introduced to the work of Saba Mahmoud um, uh, on Egypt. And I was just captivated. I read an article of hers and I was just captivated um, by it and not knowing until later, like she also comes from an interdisciplinary background of political science, like urban planning and architecture. And so it really comes out in how she understood anthropology and it really kind of directed me towards how I understand anthropology is not just about, um, I guess, uh, cultural life, but also how that cultural life is connected to different scales of power that impacts upon like how people in the everyday, see religion and politics, and both for my context, both in the Middle East and now in the U.S. So, yeah. So you went from uh, sort of in terms of your your degrees, you went from political science to to something closer to area studies, and then to anthropology. Yes. Yes. Okay. So it was kind of, okay. yeah, it was kind of a weird trajectory. I mean, I yeah, I, I really thought in my undergrad that I was going to be either going to law school after that and then onto like diplomacy or something, I don't know, at the state department. And I really just got put off during a number of uh, weird interactions that I had during my undergrad with 
folks in these Arabic programs that yeah are, yeah going to be a part funny of how that happens yeah <laughs> funny how that happens there's I think that there's just a group of expats really of that, those those uh, programs that uh, really kind of wanted to go deeper and think about yeah. uh, the context they were a part of and not just um, you know go the regular diplomacy or consulting route yeah. So your work largely looks at, you know, look at at the most broad, the anthropology of religion. So what what aspects of religion are the most interesting to you? Yeah, that's an interesting question, because I was thinking about it for a while. I, you know, I'm teaching intro to religion here uh, for the first time, actually, at Mississippi State University. And um, I think I'm getting a clearer picture as to what initially drew me to being interested in religion, both academically, but like, you know, personally too. Um, And I think it's part of who I am as a person too. Like I grew up Catholic in Buffalo, New York, and was really always captivated by the, the mystical, like the mystery of God and existence and there was always this kind of feeling that um, that I, there was a feeling there that flowed through how I saw the world and has always kind of guided the ways that I study it and empathize, like participate in kind of translations of religious life, I guess you could say. So like the most interesting aspects of religion for me that are really the ways in which people relate to the divine in their everyday lives and take seriously the mystery of that relationship and how it guides human action, interaction, and politics. So while I, you know, tend to focus on kind of different scales of power and how people are impacted by those scales of power, I actually personally, um, and in my writing, I'm interested in how people contend both with those kind of maybe um, human power relations, um, and how they understand and interpret, um, you know, divine power in their lives too. Hmm. Oh, that's well said. Thank you. That's yeah. Really, I have no that's, that's really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. When I, I, um, so this isn't anything that you need to respond to. I mean, you're welcome to, um, but, um, I, I, I find it really, uh, compelling to hear you to hear you share that uh, because it's it sounds so analogous to what I've heard many people both kind of on this show and outside the show talk about almost like a almost a spiritual um, uh, attachment to the the stuff that they that they study or they research and and sort of the communities that they um, are trying to understand uh, and so it is, um, and that never strikes me as odd. <laughs> and so to have you talk about sort of, um, like actual spirituality, sort of in the traditional sense and, and that sort of being a part of who you are and who you have been, um, and, and that sort of bringing you, um, sort of setting, perhaps setting you on the path towards, um, these questions or putting you in the way of, of these topics. Um, I find that it, it, it just, it feels a little less metaphorical in your sense to, to <laughs> how I hear a lot of people talk about it. Um, and, and I just, I, I just want to sort of, um, 
highlight that because I, I just find that very um, like lovely and remarkable. I hope that doesn't sound like condescending in any way. Or no, no, I mean, um, I mean, it comes up something just kind of on the fly coming up for me too, is that being an anthropologist, even for me, what it allows me to, to um, engage with is that sense of um, kind of giving into who I um, am and where I've come from in how I'm studying um, and working with and learning from a, a particular community. And I don't just mean, you know, in the case of my, my first big project on Coptic Christians, but, you know, on Coptic Christians in Upper Egypt and a very rural community vis-a-vis -vis in Jersey City and being a part of those communities, both not just as a researcher, but as somebody learning from them. And so I really think both um, about my journey in anthropology as one connected to my journey in life. It's not just metaphorical. It's also, you know, I'm learning through the people that I'm, you know, uh, writing about and thinking about, um, yeah. for, for my own personal life too. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I hope that, um, I hope that in cases where that is unsaid by others, that it's still true. <laughs> um, because I, I think that that's a really, that's a good way to do it. That's a way that I, I really, um, I really quite admire. Well, okay. So next, next real question. <laughs> um, so here on the dirt, um, we spend a lot of our time looking at the more archaeological corners of anthropology. So it truly is a rare pleasure to speak with someone whose focus falls in one of the other three fields. And uh, Candace, normally when we bring somebody on from one of the other three fields, we're just like, how does it happen? Like, how do you do it? Uh, but I think we actually are going to be asking you, like, how do you do it? Um, but but sort of you you talked a bit about your work with um, your, your work with with Saba, with uh, Saba Mahmoud, um, and sort of her uh, interdisciplinary um, approach to things. Um, but could you tell us a little bit more about your approach to interdisciplinary work? Um, do you find yourself, uh, I want to know about sort of interdisciplinary versus intradisciplinary. And do you find yourselves drawing from other disciplines uh, more often or more readily than from the other subfields within anthropology? Like, do you find yourselves like do you, yourself like thinking much about archaeology or thinking much about sort of the, the more like biological aspects um, or um, like linguistic aspects of um of, of sort of the communities that you are, you are learning from? Yeah. Um, you know, I think I've learned throughout the years that it's, it's really just how, can, how can I tell this story completely? And I think that from the get-go, um, that requires doing intra-disciplinary intra work. So yes, you know, I started out in political science and that kind of gave me a foundation of thinking actually about power and power structures and was brought into kind of thinking about historical conditions and cultural practices of folks like in and from the Middle East, it, you know, in, in area studies work. Um, so kind of going deeper into this, I don't even think I had a formulated question at that point in time, but I was following something that I was engaged with and observing in my 
kind of follow-up trips to Egypt and hanging out with, um, you know, uh, more and more uh, Coptic friends and family members, et cetera. Um, and that led me, yes, methodologically to anthropology because I really wanted to attend these kind of, I guess, uh, they would be called like kind of the whispers of life, you know, to like mm-hmm. living, breathing people and, you know, being accountable to these people who, you know, have knew, like knew what I was doing in terms of my work and research, but trusted me with their stories and with being just like a part of their lives. So being accountable to them. Um, but, you know, now as an anthropologist, like finding themselves in like a department of philosophy and religion, I almost feel that it's, it's very fitting for this moment as I'm also trying to grapple with and explore the intersections of both like theology and critical theory, um, in finishing up my, my book project. Um, and all of these kind of different disciplines and methods, et cetera, um, kind of interweave for me to tell, um, or to be part of like a broader constellation of, um, the complete story that I need to tell. And also part of that, um, especially when thinking about cops and Coptic Christianity, uh, is that, you know, Coptic archaeology, quite frankly, and thinking about kind of cops in late antiquity and, uh, you know, coptologists. Uh, while I'm not a coptologist myself, a lot of these uh, folks are very much engaged in thinking about language um, mm-hmm. and thinking about, uh, you know, artifacts and uh uh, sites to excavate and things of that nature, which is not my specialty, but I need to also know what's happening in those fields because the way in which those folks who are working, you know, maybe, uh, it from you know, a thousand plus years ago, um, the conversations that they're having about cops is actually important to the conversation I'm having about transnational cops and how Coptic Christians understand themselves in the contemporary world. Because um, those archaeological findings, um, Coptic language studies is also integral to how they practice um, as Coptic Christians. So it's not as if, you know, archaeology and, uh, uh, you know, Coptic linguists and and those type of folks are uh, completely separated from uh, how Coptic Christians practice and understand their history, et cetera. Actually, they feed into one another. And so it's been super important for me to keep up with what um, those fields have been doing and what directions they are going in, because it helps me to tell a more complete story about um, what being Coptic Christian between Egypt and the United States um, in the 21st century is all about. In terms of beliefs and cosmology, the farther back you go in time with anything, the the less material evidence there is of it. And, and those things, those ephemeral things like belief are so hard to pin down. Um, and that's a part of a population's collective experience that we just can't access sometimes. So... <laughs> On to speculation. If you were to speculate what some of the first pieces of shared human beliefs were, what would they be? Yeah. So, you know, I've been thinking about this. Um, I've been thinking about this for a while too, because, 
this is not just, I think, a question in um, anthropology or archaeology, but it, it's also a very theological question um, in that, uh, you know, I, I would say that from the perspective of Orthodox Christian theology, because quite frankly, I, when I grew up Catholic, I know Orthodox Christianity much better now, um, at least for me and how I understand it, helps us to kind of get a piece of that answer. So without kind of delving into research on uh, more recent research on like cognitive connections of religious practices. There's been a number of studies um, by somebody like Tanya Lerman who uh, think about the kind of what happens when one prays, right? Thinking about uh, cognition and and things of that nature, which is not my specialty. Um, I think that there's something uh, mysterious in in each of us, right. That kind of draws us toward a divine authority. I don't, I wouldn't say that it is cognition necessarily, but it is kind of, again, if we're being speculative here, uh, almost like just kind of like cosmic, like energy and particles, I guess you could say that, that drives us toward thinking about, um, the divine, um, whatever that may look like, or may have, uh, been understood as thousands and thousands of years ago. Um, from an Orthodox like perspective, what was happening thousands and thousands of years ago uh, is still connected to the Orthodox, the Christian story. So even if it didn't have the kind of, um, you know, biblical through line that we know today, that, that feeling, that connection was always still there within kind of human beings and it guided human action. So I guess my speculative answer really is just to say that uh, I think that we've, as humans, have always been connected to, to mystery in one way or another. Yeah. And, and so when you say, when you say connection, you're saying sort of a connection to the the mysterious like toward, toward like I don't know yearning towards like like meaning or or mystery yeah. or you yeah, saying connection I, like among people or or both is that something I like, think both sort of I think okay. both maybe not meaning necessarily but um like so I know I don't mean in that like meaning for life like why I don't you know why are we here but rather um a connection to uh, us, land, environment, each other, um, that is directed towards something kind of higher, more mm-hmm. cos- cosmic, or I would say divine in some way. Okay, Sure. Yeah. And then on the, on the sort of flip side of that, I mean, there is the, the, the aspect of mystery and then also the aspect of trying to understand why certain things are the way they are. And I think one of the, probably one of the most, my speculation is that, um, you know, understanding death is probably one of the places where you, I mean, in the archaeological record, it is where you get some of the first evidence of something, some kind of cohesive system of cosmology or belief or understanding of what happens because you get deliberate burials. And as soon as you start getting burials with objects like grave goods, you start getting the sense that that death was regarded as not necessarily the end of things. 
Um, mm. which, which is always interesting to me. And I don't, like, I, I can't really speculate further. It's just sort of like, there's something that happens there. Um, and, and even mm-hmm. before that with burial, you know, it could be a practical concern because you don't want to attract, you know, carnivores, but, um, mm-hmm. maybe it's something else. We just don't know. We just don't know. Yeah. Well, on the, on the topic of, of things that, Anne and I just don't know. Um, here's, the, here's the part where I ask about what <laughs> um, what your flavor of, of anthropology looks like. Um, so when you do your research, um, what does it look like sort of in the day to day? Do you have sort of a, a normal, normal day? Um, how do you go about trying to piece together the story of a, a community or a cultural group um, through ethnography and oral history and, and other, um, and sort of other, other methods that you pull into your research. Yeah. So just, you know, just so that my answer doesn't get too wieldy here. Um, (laughs) I'm, you know, I actually want to talk about uh, a new project that I'm beginning to think about um, on claims of claims to indigeneity in the Middle East and how, migration, um, transnational connection and in, in what I would describe as imperial ruins, uh, in the region kind of frame, uh, such claims, um, mm-hmm. and especially among, uh, Assyrians between Iraq and the United States. And so, you know, to, to answer this question based off of my first book project would be so hard because it's been so many years, but <laughs> being in the, yeah, being like the first, like, my research has been slow going, obviously, because of the pandemic. Um, but at base, I'd say that the most important building blocks um, are making like the main foundations of connection for your like places, interlocutors, et cetera. So thinking in my case, like thinking about what organizations, what specific communities. So I'm thinking um of doing this research between uh, northern Iraq, uh, probably around Erbil and um, Washington, D.C., partially and Detroit, Michigan. So it's like mm-hmm. really thinking about like what communities am I going to be working with in these three different places, um, as well as like who what individuals are going to be like my my main interlocutors, people that I go to to really like ask the, the tough questions that I'm thinking about and really building that trust and starting to show up for these people, even before beginning kind of formal, uh, you know, post IRB like field work, right. Mm -hmm. Um, of saying, I am interested in these questions. I know members of your community are interested in these questions and I am going to approach these questions over a period of years with absolute care. And that takes time. So in the pandemic that has meant for me, um, and I know that for many people doing field work now for even their dissertations have had to adapt certain things. So for me, that has meant really attending like Zoom meetings of different organizations in the U.S. that are, were doing those um, and being very kind of transparent about conversations they were having, et cetera. And people, you know, seeing my name and knowing who I am and knowing why I'm interested in these questions with them. Um, that has also meant educating myself, right? Like I've in Egypt for so many years, um, I will not, uh, pretend that I know all there is to know about Syrian history or Iraqi history, um, even as somebody who knows the Middle East quite well. So it's about kind of, um, following, 
you know, even in the most kind of modest of ways, following relevant accounts on Instagram and Twitter. There are so many transnational Assyrians that are connecting with one another in these spaces, especially like Instagram um, and and as well as Twitter, but especially Instagram, because visually it's about kind of piecing together a community that has been dispersed, that has endured genocide. Um, And so uh, that's really been kind of my methodology of, at least in these initial stages, is just getting a few folks um, that I trust to think through initial questions with, knowing what are the main kind of um, sites of contention um, and discussion. Um, And so really every... Uh, it kind of day to day, it looks like you just kind of building up like one piece of knowledge at a time until you're ready to do that kind of intense field work uh, that is just, you know, being in the field and being sweaty and losing sweet sleep and trying to find time to write all of those field notes after each and every conversation. That, that takes a lot, that takes a long time to get to that point where you feel comfortable doing that. We try to give our, our, um, our interview guests sort of opportunities to talk about sort of like what the experience is. And it sounds like, um, this is an experience of, uh, of long-term work. And so you just described, you just described a a lot of work, like sort of years of work before what it sounds like you would call field work. So it's just sort of like, um, establishing the field before going into it and doing field work. work. Yeah. All right, well, we're going to take a quick ad break and then we will be back with more questions. Hey everyone, Chris Webster from the APN here. We have used a number of solutions for recording our podcast with interesting people from around the world. None have worked better than Zencaster. For the last several years, we've been using Zencaster for high quality recordings that are easy to do and put little to no stress on the guest. And now Zencaster has high quality video and even automatic transcription. So click the link in the show notes or head over to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use the code HEVO, H-E-V-O, to get 30% off your first three months of the pro plan. If you're starting a podcast anytime soon, it's totally worth it. Again, click the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months. And they even give a little back to us when you do. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. And we're back. And we are still with Candice Lukasik. And so, Candice, your first book focuses on the ways that Coptic Christianity has been politicized or politically co-opted by American conservatives. And so the sort of gist of the the way that 
the oppression of these communities is being used by those external to it is is martyrdom. So is that how Coptic Christians see their own collective past? Is it not? And how does the whole process of of a political party latching on to another group's experience and co-opting it for political reasons. How does that happen? Here's the thing. I don't think there's like an easy answer to this question without attending to moments where cops, I guess, respond to and engage like this politicization Mm -hmm. and meaning that um, answering this question would be very different in uh, if I answered it with a vignette, for example, like from a conference in Washington, D.C. on Christian persecution, whereby both co- like Coptic Christians as well as Nigerian Christians and a number of other Christians in, for the most part, Muslim-majority contexts have been co-opted and used for certain political ends. But I think I want to answer this question like from a different like uh, lens in that sure. there are ways that even in Egypt, the politicization of Coptic martyrdom by American conservatives also kind of lends legitimacy and power to cops um, as being part of a global Christian community, like one in which they weren't always considered to be a part, um, whether during the kind of um, periods of colonization and missionization, whereby cops were not understood to be Christians. And so in in that context, even in Egypt, kind of the way that American um, conservatives um, have focused on Coptic martyrdom. So maybe even in the case of the 21 martyrs of Libya in February of 2015, where 20 cops and one Guinean man were beheaded on the shores of Libya um, for refusing to um, renounce their, their faith. And that particular episode has been taken up by Christians globally. And Christians inside of Egypt, uh, whether they're family members of those that were martyred or not, um, have seen that uh, that recognition in a positive light. Hmm. But aside from that, I, you know, I will say, let me just talk a little bit about a story from the U.S. context because yeah. I think that this is where we find things to be a little bit interesting. Where in the U.S., like responses of cops to this politicization, like really varies according to generation. Mm. Um, yeah. So. You know, I mentioned, because I think it's such an interesting scene, I mentioned the scene in um, uh, my article uh, that kind of uh, introduces my ideas in my book from uh, American anthropologists from last year, where a Coptic woman um, I interacted with uh, in New Jersey had a hard time believing Muslims would hire Christians um, to work at, in, on food, at food carts in Manhattan. And she believed that the Muslim Brotherhood was trying to take over uh, America. Um, so it was a conversation both about Coptic employment and Muslim employers and how all those Muslim employers that worked at food carts were a part of a Muslim Brotherhood conspiracy. So this woman who I've, I've called Justina, was um, a second generation cop born and raised in New Jersey, as I mentioned. Um, But her parents um, are still very connected to Egyptian political context. So through like TV, um, like they have these, I mean, you can order it even if you're outside of New York, New Jersey, you can have like this attachment to your TV and like watch Egyptian television without ever watching like American TV. So it's kind of cool. But uh, I don't know if, I, I don't know if I would, 
want solely that on my CV, but, uh, so whether like through TV, like social media, like, um, communications on Viber, WhatsApp, et cetera. So in Egypt, the Muslim Brotherhood's rise to power after 2011, the revolution in 2011 there, um, was, you know, a, a major issue for, uh, many religious minorities, but I mean, including and especially cop, Coptic Christians. And, that's because like historically some of those political discourses of the organization and other Islamist organizations led to increased violence against cops. And so those very real contexts like in Egypt mm-hmm. obviously followed Coptic migrants to the U S and intermixed with far right and like not so far right rhetoric on the Muslim brotherhood uh, and other Islamist organizations kind of, um, as I talk about in my book, infused with this like Cold War battle for the future of Western civilization and the threat of Islam to Western civilization. Mm-hmm. Um, and so 9-11 and more recently the rise of ISIS kind of continued this rhetoric. And under Trump, like such discourses obviously around Islam made their way into the halls of Congress. And that's actually nothing new, but um, somebody like... Um, Ted Cruz and other um, members of Congress have tried to label the Muslim Brotherhood a global threat and a you know a terrorist organization, um, and so you can kind of see how these different contexts might come together in the U.S. So you know those broader geopolitical contexts of U.S. empire and like their international reach of the of the far right which, you know, Ted Cruz could be said to be a part of um, in various ways, intersect with the national and local Egyptian ones that Justine and her family have engaged with. Um, And that's where that particular perspective of Justina kind of comes about. So like hearing about those Egyptian contexts from her parents and following Egyptian news and thinking about the Muslim Brotherhood through an Egyptian context contributes to her understanding of like who they are in U.S. society and so, like, taking into account those, like, homeland contexts in, you know, uh, like, migrant translations, you could say, and kind of intergenerational translations, like, shouldn't be taken for, for granted, really. And so that's kind of where those different scales come together, where that, politi- that kind of conservative politicization interacts with kind of community um, engagement with it. Can I ask a, a 101 question? Yes. Yes. What are the ways, the like primary ways that Coptic Christianity differs from, say, Catholicism or? How is Coptic Christianity different? How is Coptic Orthodoxy different? Um, I will say that theologically, uh, you know, quite different. Well, let me let me take a step back and say, obviously, you know, Protestants and Catholics uh, theologically are quite different. Right. One community and Orthodox are also a part of this argument, too, um, is you know, more hierarchical in nature, more dependent upon, you know, thinking about th- authority and practice um, and the importance of, you know, sacraments, like being more specific. And the other Protestants um, who vary, there's so many sects of Protestantism. Uh, for the most part, you know, very much are focused um, less on, uh, you know, ritual practice, let's, let's, you could say, I guess, um, and very much about being very Bible-based. Again, not to say that Catholicism isn't Bible-based, but it is to say that the separation between these two communities is really dependent upon 
um, the authority of the church and sacramental life. So Catholics and Orthodox both share that. Well, it makes kind of Coptic Orthodoxy very different, even from like Eastern Orthodoxy, is that Protestants, Catholics, and Eastern Orthodox um, all share uh, the same theology around um, the uh, nature of, of Christ. So thinking about Jesus Christ's human and divine uh, natures. Um, and in the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD, um, essentially uh, there was an argument over the nature of Christ um, and uh, what are to, today understood to be Coptic Orthodox Christians from that time period until today have been um, split off from the rest of, of Christendom because they took on a, that's the church took on a different position from what was accepted at that council. And so because of that, I mean, that theological difference actually infused itself like into um, colonial difference too. So when Egypt was colonized um, by the French and, and the British and more or less formally colonized in some ways by other uh, European countries. Um, the way in which they talked about cops was very much through this uh, heretical lens. Right? And so it okay. really only, yeah, it really only becomes over the past 30 years that Coptic Orthodox Christians, because of this, you know, um, contention with Muslims and anti-Christian violence in Egypt have been more accepted as actual Christians. Um, and so this is where it, it, this is where the moment of conservative politicization of Coptic martyrdom becomes so unique and interesting, um, because they're almost accepted as, as equals on the plane of kind of global Christendom. Have you have you seen or or um, or read or or sort of um, inferred any sense of like reconciliation or revisionism on the part of uh, these political or politico religious um, uh, bodies here in the U.S. Um, who are opening arms to um, to Coptic Christian communities? Has there been any um, uh, official? you know, uh, theological statements to that end. No, but there are interesting ways in which we can see how cops have been accepted um, on a different plane of Christian intelligibility, um, you know, in compare from, from today in comparison to even 30 years ago. So like even beyond the example of, um, of the politicization of, of Coptic martyrdom in Washington, D.C., uh, there are kind of transnational initiatives of evangelical ecumenism whereby they have, they have uh, brought in Coptic Orthodox um, to be interlocutors. So, for example, um, the Coptic Bishop Angelos of London, um, he uh, co-chairs an initiative called the Lusane Orthodox Evangelical uh, Initiative, which basically is kind of centered on Protestant or evangelical and Orthodox, and in this case, Coptic Orthodox understanding um, and kind of community building through different projects across the, the global South, interfaith projects across, across the global South. Um, and so that is very unique. Um, 
not only that, but Bishop Angelos is also the head of the Bible Society um, in the UK. Also fascinating, just because uh, the Bible Society, typically a Protestant organization, um, was a part of uh, missionary and colonial efforts in in Egypt. Um, that is exactly what I thought something with that name would have. Yeah, exactly. um, just sort of calling it that. It sort of make it made it does. It isn't an illustrative name. <laughs> it's fascinating. I mean, the, the last point would be uh, after um, the beheading of the 21 in Libya in, 20, in February of 2015, Pope Francis came out and said, you know, that these are martyrs. These are Christian martyrs. Like they, they traversed church and denomination and sect and all of that. Um, and that there is, and he termed it an ecumenism of blood that they were, that these martyrs were transvalued even beyond what, you know, sect they were or whatever. They were martyrs for all of us. And that is, I mean, incredibly fascinating. I mean, he had to backtrack a little bit because there are some Catholic uh, traditionalists that would say, but no, they're still not, they're not our saints. They're not our martyrs. Mm. Um, But for the Pope of you know, the the Catholic church to come out and say that uh, is quite significant. So cops are really only recognized as being a part of global Christendom when they're kind of dead or bloody. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. Ecumenism is sort of uh, unity among Christian denominations. And is it sort of like I'm going off of like Sunday school. So this is, (laughs) yeah. And I'm going off of Hebrew school, which is even less helpful here. Yeah, I mean, I think that, in, I mean, in layman's terms, it would be how I just personally understand it, because even as like a non-theologian, I, I sometimes wonder what it actually means. But <laughs> ecumenism is, from my understanding, is really about how can we come together in peace? And so not just like mm-hmm. as Christians, but ecumenism is, I mean, I guess like for, for listeners out there, it would be you know, akin to really thinking about interfaith, the dialogue, right? But humanism in the Christian sense also means, you're right, like how do we come together as a unified Christianity? I mean, not to say that all theological and like church-related issues go away, but it's like the goal. Right. Okay. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Um, (laughs) um, So... Uh, Candace, what are some insights from from your research, like from either from your new project uh, or for your your sort of your first book? This is it's like wild to hear you say like first book, new book. Um, But but what are some um, what are some insights that you've gained um, from from your time in, in the field and sort of on your journey that you most want people to understand? Yeah. What, what, what big question there. Um, <laughs> I think at least I, I am still very fascinated about, uh, about what happens to religion and migration. And so like, I think first off, I would, I would want to um, have folks understand that like migration is not just about the destination uh, it's not just about, you know, questions of assimilation or occult enculturation or any of those uh, sociological terms, but, you know, or even the process of migrating, of like fo- literally following people as they're moving between a homeland and, and a diaspora. So kind of in the physical sense, rather 
I think it's important to like attend to those homeland contexts, like why migrants want to um, and end up leaving. Um, that matters enormously. Um, and it matters because those contexts impact upon diaspora politics. So for me, you know, I, and I hope that I can do, do this justice in my second project, um, understanding where migrants, where folks are coming from, uh, those contexts is important to understanding how they translate things that are happening in their everyday lives here. And even folks in like the second or third generations, how they interpret what Egypt is or what Iraq is or any of those other places is important to how they understand um, themselves um, in the U.S. and elsewhere. So that's kind of first and foremost as kind of a methodological point, I guess, on, on migration. But the second and finally, just something like very basic is that Middle Eastern Christians or minority communities uh, in the Middle East are more than discourses of violence and persecution. Mm -hmm. um, they are more than historical objects of observation. So even thinking about uh, uh, archaeologists here, uh, some of them um, that engage in uh, coptology in that way, um, they are anisteriology. Um, they are citizens. They're um, migrants with power. Um, to reshape you know, broader narratives of, you know, citizenship, human rights. And, and for me, especially thinking about, you know, class conditions in places like Egypt, um, as well as racial justice, political organizing, and popular culture in the U.S. That's probably, that's, you know, it, what I really, really want people to walk away from, especially with my first book. Since we now know that doing research in the way that you do takes a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of planning and forethought and, and laying the groundwork, what's a good starting place for people interested in research addressing religion of any kind and other aspects of culture in extant communities? So like in that process of laying groundwork and, and thinking about a project focusing on a community, where do you even start? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll just say very briefly that it's really about being a, a part of those communities. And I don't mean like as a convert. Um, I mean, that happens sometimes, but not as a convert, but as someone invested in their well-being and their futures. So not simply as an analyst, not simply as somebody collecting like information or, you know, a, a given project, but also as an ally, that you have a responsibility to the people that are opening up their homes and hearts and, and pain and injury um, to be discussed. And so, in my opinion, like we just, we should not be reproducing kind of colonial forms of knowledge of like extraction for, you know, in a very crass way, just like for professional gain, that these are people that have the context that we study is sometimes, you know, life or death. Right. They're not just people. assets. Exactly. Um, and so that's, that's where I would actually, that's where I would start is kind of grounding yourself in that ethos. Is this something that like, is there sort of like a methodological handbook, handbook? Yeah. or like doing like, like sort of like, like ethical. I feel like and, there should be. If there is um, 
Yeah. Is, is that, or is it something that you have, um, is it something that you learned, uh, just through reading, um, examples of, of, uh, unethical work yeah. <laughs> um, and like is it is it sort of negatively constructed like is it sort of like I don't Not want this. to do that yeah. or like I don't want this outcome how can I set this up and was this something that is sort of codified somewhere or is it completely uncodifiable to be honest I don't know if I have any specific books on ethics but but rather <laughs> for me though it was it was something that was cultivated in in being a student of 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 Saba of Saba Mahmoud um, as well as Charles Hershkin. And the reason I say that is not just because I learned how to read from them, but because of the attention on um, power and conditions and even class dynamics, uh, attending to how these things all come together to produce different ways of seeing the world in the communities that we um, work with, become kind of allies to, Mm -hmm. was key to me kind of developing a certain um, ethical base and how I understand my work. And even how the argument in my first book has developed, right? In in really thinking about how migration of cops to the United States or migration of actually other communities, minority communities from the Middle East to the United States um, didn't just happen randomly, right? Uh, That there are certain kind of social forces that have directed uh, folks into that migratory path. And so with that as my kind of lighthouse of attending to what are what are the structural conditions by which, um, you know, these people make choices? Mm-hmm. Um, some of them very difficult is really what has kind of guided me um, in thinking about questions associated with my work and being also generous with people that I have worked with in, in the field that are not, you know, I, I don't see them as really good friends. Let's just say like I, see them as having very bad opinions and uh, rather dangerous opinions, political opinions and otherwise, without kind of attending to how they got to the place that they got to. I, you know, I can't have any source of, of humility or understanding mm. um, without understanding, without kind of attending to these broader um, conditions. I know that that probably is uh, too broad of an answer, but um, no, it's, it's just, yeah, I wanted to give people some things to think about in terms of, cause this is so far removed from the way that I think about anthropology mm-hmm. just because of my, my own interests and my own training. Um, and so I'm trying to think from, from the perspective of someone listening who is really interested in the idea of, of doing this sort of broader ethnographic research, but I don't know how to guide them. So like everything that you're saying, Candace, is really insightful and I think valuable for someone who only thinks about sort of deep history. Yeah. Um, oh, I'm not saying it's not valuable to me. Sorry. That was not my point <laughs> but at all. I'm saying that this is, no, I, I, I'm not, I, I'm not, I'm not I'm, I'm trying to imply that you, you did say that, <laughs> but um, I think that it's really valuable just try because um, 
what we do here is we try to, um, as best we can, uh, remind ourselves and our listeners um, and our, uh, you know, those with whom we're in conversation that the past is full of people with interiority and it's full of of communities and lived experiences and sort of, yeah, emotion and experience of circumstance. And so um, some of of what you're talking about in your work, Candice, is is a bit divergent from similar work, uh, perhaps contemporary work and, and past work in terms of um, not um, not necessarily seeing the complete humanity of of its human subjects uh, that it's that it's trying to study. Um, and I so I think that uh, like I I find your approach and in, in your work like very like powerful and compelling and and sort of something to look to as sort of a um uh, sort of an example of of a very like good responsible yeah, good scholarship um yeah uh, like attentive uh scholarship and i think that it's something that um if we're going to be reading across specialties and we're going to be reading across <laughs> disciplines i think that this is something that um that 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 folks who think only in um, non-extant communities, whether or not there's a descendant community or not, that it doesn't really factor in. Um, I, I think that this is something really valuable. And and also, um, we had an episode um, earlier this year on the Neo-Assyrians. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this was sort of me talking about kind of the archaeological record. And then we had a bit of a coda at the end to sort of remind people that... Um, that the Assyrians exist and uh, and and sort of that there is this sort of uh, continuity and and a lot of the um, a, a lot of the attention that is paid to um, sort of Mesopotamian kingdoms and sort of the Assyrian imperial state uh, really like highlights the brutality of it mm-hmm. and sort of the military prowess um, and so you've got Some that people are and, so and into got, it. People who, yeah, who like kind of fetishize that violence, but, um, and then you have um, the, um, the contemporary um, Assyrian community and Assyrian diasporas that um, are, are sort of only understood, as you said, as, as sort of historical objects or narratives of violence. We're not even, not even alive. Like that's exactly. Yeah. Yeah. One of the fascinating aspects about, I mean, even, I think archaeology will actually factor more into my second book than even the first one, because really Assyrians um, have, have solely been understood through these ancient contexts, right? So, so even the term, even communities that say we are Assyrian, there are many of these, you know, archaeologists and, and I don't think that, I, I don't know, you can correct me. I, I don't know if there's Assyriologists anymore, but Assyriologists. Oh, sure oh gosh, there are. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, good to know. Well, so these are the folks that I'm going to have to be reading uh, because, uh, you know, modern day Assyrians really, have major issues with how they frame their identity and how they kind of denigrate them and say that they don't exist. And they're just trying to kind of, um, invent, uh, a, you know, a new identity for themselves. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, these have really serious consequences for, um, you know, 
indigenous claims in places like Northern Iraq, like where, you know, um, maintaining their presence and saying that we are Assyrian and speaking Assyrian is vital to their survival. We're going to take one more break and then we're going to get back to the hardest questions that we ask every guest. Mm -hmm. Um, And (laughs) so I'll give you just a few seconds more to think of your answers, Candace, Um, and we'll be right back. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. We are back. Uh, And so our penultimate question for you is um, what's the best thing about anthropology? Obviously, this is your opinion, but. Yeah, I think I've gotten more militant in the past few years about anthropology. And, uh, you know, even as somebody in, you know, a department of philosophy and religion, I think that that militancy will uh, continue to, to grow in the sense that I really love anthropology because I mean, yes, it has its positives and negatives um, in terms of who becomes anthropologists and what they study and then publish on. Um, and who is and it for? So, yeah. And who is it for? I don't know. I was just, yeah, just thinking about certain uh, Twitter threads around, around this topic, but no, what, what's the best thing about anthropology for me is that again, it, it comes to a question of methodology. Like, why am I an anthropologist and not, you know, for example, a sociologist or, or a political scientist or whatever. Um, and it's really because I, I think that we attend to everyday life and not just the retelling of stories. So obviously other fields, religious studies, sociology, et cetera, even political science has taken on the methodologies of, of, um, of anthropology or have really reduced it to um, ethnography and field work. And that's not, exactly what you know the the um what anthropology is or what its complexities are um it's not just the retelling of stories but it's really in my mind interweaving them in like creative and sometimes poetic ways um that really kind of offer an opening to not only see the world differently but offer a different world um of like pathways forward. So again, it's not just kind of being a stenographer of like recording what people do and then telling other, you know, academics and other folks what people do, but it's about interweaving those stories within a broader one in a very artistic way um, that I think that anthropologists and as well as archaeologists, I would say, mm-hmm. were storytellers and were um, sculptors in many ways. Um, and so that's what I think the best thing about anthropology is, is that we're allowed to, um, for the most part, kind of think of uh, a world beyond the one that we have here. Brilliant answer. Yeah. I loved it. This is the really hard one. I mean, we've been told (laughs) it's the really hard one. So if you could be a fly on the wall, for any moment in either human history or prehistory or for any moment in the history of anthropology as the discipline developed, what would you most want to see 
Yeah, this, this is this is a hard one, and I'm not trying to <laughs> cop out here, but I think that, again, like my the way that I answer these questions, the way I even write is about, okay, what I've experienced. And I worked in a village in Upper Egypt and um, that has a lot of these really old villas from like the 1800s, early 1900s, and they're just dilapidated and, and pretty much destroyed. And I always just like imagine, I wish that I, I was in it, like I could transport myself to like the moment that they were alive. And I think for me, even more so walking through the streets of Cairo, mm. because that city is so, I mean, really formed who I am as an adult, quite frankly, um, and my experiences there, I kind of just like often wonder um, what things were like, you know, on the street that I'm walking in like a hundred 200, 500 plus years ago. And even before that, even walking in Alexandria, I'm like, where are all of these, you know, um, famous people, where would they have been? You know, I thought uh, you were going to say, where's the library? Yeah. Where's the library? Oh my gosh. Yes. Like that's also <laughs> one of those things. One of the, I, I mean, I, sometimes I wish I was an archeologist only because I would love to like, just be in the thick of those excavations, you know, and to be uncovering things and just to like, like think about what was here when these, you know, items were placed here or what life was like, what, um, yeah, I just, it's about kind of walking through these different neighborhoods and walking into a space that is just like pregnant with so many memories. Um, and so I don't know if it's kind of a specific time, but there's so many times I would love to just be transported to in a place like in a place like Cairo, quite frankly, um, to see what all of the events, all of the things, all the people, all those memories, all those events that made Cairo what it is today. Um, and so, yeah, that would be my answer. Well, in this scenario, oh, you're a time traveling fly, so you can go see whatever you want. <laughs> I mean, I was, you know, I was thinking about that. Uh, I watched this really horrible TV show uh, on HBO called The Time Traveler's Wife, and it's really bad. But book's pretty good. Oh, the book is pretty good. Okay, yeah. Um, the the show is not, but I really wish I was that dude. Though I would love <laughs> time travel. You would, be, uh, you would like to be the titular time traveler? Yes. <laughs> Your answer uh, was, you know, beautifully put and, and reminds me of very timely. So it's going to date this episode a bit. Um, but um, I don't know if you're familiar with the cartoonist and sort of graphic novelist Dina Muhammad. Yes. Um, oh, I yeah. saw her cartoon today on Twitter. Yeah. I was like, yes, that's what that's what my answer is. That's exactly. So, so for all of us who didn't see that that tweet today um it's a it's a really uh wonderful comic and you know we can we'll we'll post retweet it it when this episode comes out um but yeah it's just about sort of the um kind of the thickness of history um in these in these spaces and sort of the the thickness of um and sort of the depth of of kind of the history and emotion and experience um and sort of joy and pain that um you sort of walk through um when you're in spaces like that um and so yeah that's really um really wonderful i do want to say that it traverses though this this loving of like old places and things um i carry with me everywhere i mean i'm even looking at old kind of um 
uh, houses um, in the Mississippi, like where I am in Mississippi, um, you know, and I want something from like the late 19th, early 20th century, hopefully with uh, a good history. Um, that being said, uh, I love that kind of old style because I just feel that there's life there, you know? Um, yeah. And so I experienced that a lot in Cairo, that kind of overwhelming feeling of history. Um, and yeah. Yeah. This sort of, um, that's a, you know, you would, if you were, if you were to, to sort of reincarnate yourself as an archaeologist, you'd be a great phenomenologist <laughs> of sort of going in and, and, and fully you know, ex- experiencing the landscape. Yes. Um, well, Candace, thank you so much for talking with us. I, need to sit my brain is really full and I need to sit and but in the best way and I'm I'm looking forward to just kind of chewing over this over the next few days um if folks want to find you and your work online where should they go you know they can go to my website it's candicelucastic.com um they can also go to our department website at Mississippi State University the department of philosophy um, and religion um, and so those would be the main, main two places to, to find me. And I'm really open to receiving any correspondence from folks that have any questions about my work or any of the thoughts that I shared with you both here, mm-hmm. um, today. I love talking to people, so feel free to <laughs> shoot me an email. Yeah. Well, um, thank you for listening, everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will be in your ears again next week with new content, uh, which you can find where you found this, um, anywhere you get your podcast. So Spotify, Audible, Stitcher, Podbean, wherever, anywhere, anywhere you like, it's there. Until then, you can find all our back episodes at thedirtpod.com, where you can also find our show notes, where we will have links to Candace's website and other things that uh, were mentioned in this episode. We've got resources for educators, info about sponsoring episodes, the link to our Patreon, our merch store, and more. Uh, and you can also find us on social media. On Facebook, you can find us at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. Thank you again, Candice. And thank you, everybody, for listening. We love you. Goodbye. Bye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.